Palm Sunday. Um, we've talked about it a few times already. As a matter of fact, I think Suzanne was reading my notes. She, uh, she was what she talked about at the beginning of service. I'm like, wow, that's what I'm preaching about, but, but we know. Um, you know, the Sunday before Easter, when the church world remembers that day 2,000 years ago when Jesus entered Jerusalem at the end of his earthly ministry to shouts from the crowd of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they covered the road in their coats and and in palm branches. That's why we call it Palm Sunday. And they hailed him as king coming into Jerusalem. Well, today what we're going to do on this Palm Sunday is we are going to look at that original Palm Sunday for a reason. We're going to look at it. And I hope we're going to come to understand what it symbolized um, and what it was meant to symbolize. But then we are going to jump forward into the book of Acts and see how those early Christians understood that day differently after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Because remember this, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the greatest changing, change agent in the history of all humanity. And so those people on that day, before he died and rose from the dead, they looked at Palm Sunday as one thing. And then those after that day, so the early Acts Christians, they looked at it different. And we'll see what, for them, became normal anyways for them to understand and experience. So what I'm going to do at this time, too, a little different than other sermons, is we're going through the What's Normal Anyway series, is I'm not going to tell you what the What's Normal Anyways is until after we talk about the the um, what was what was the that day really symbolized? Because I know if I if I don't tell you that right now, some of you who are wonderful note takers, which I think you should be, are going to go insane for the next ten minutes and go, well, what's the what's normal anyway thing? So I'm going to tell you the what's normal anyway after we look at the original Palm Sunday from the scriptures and talk about what it meant to them. And then we're going to fast forward then into Acts. So grab your Bible. Who's got their Bible today? Hold it up. Somebody asked me recently. They said, they were visiting at the church, and they said, how come you don't put your scriptures on the, on the screens? And I said, well, I'm not opposed to that. But I said, I'm trying to create a culture in the church where whether it's a, an iPhone or it's your print Bible, that we, be, that we really understand we need to be people of the book. And that I want you to learn, especially those who are brand new in Christ, learn how to look and open your Bible and find it. And so I said, well, that's why I don't do it now. I said, so maybe someday we will, but we don't right now because I want people to bring this thing to church. You know, I want them to have a Bible. You know, like is when you say it's my Bible, you know. Um, and so if you don't have a Bible, you're visiting um, or you're newer to us. There's Bibles in the racks in front of you in the chairs. You don't have a Bible, use it today, take it with you, write your name in a cover and say, that's my Bible. Okay. So, Matthew 21. Did I tell you the text already? Matthew 21. I was getting sidetracked. Staff claps at me. They say I get on rabbit trails. So once in a while we start talking, and I'm the one who starts barking like a beagle. Because we're chasing a rabbit somewhere we're not supposed to be. Now you all got insight into what our staff meetings are like at times. Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. The original Palm Sunday. It says, when they had approached Jerusalem, it's Jesus and his 12 followers, and they come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there 
and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter, this is what the prophet said, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the crowds going ahead of them, of him, were, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth, Nazareth in Galilee. So on that day, Jesus rides in the town on a donkey. He begins what we know from this side of history, um, his last week of earthly life and ministry. Now, I, I hesitate to say that because Jesus is still alive. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. The Bible says what he's doing is he's praying for us. He's interceding for the church. So Jesus hasn't, isn't you know, dead and gone. But it was his last week of earthly ministry where in flesh and blood he walked the streets of the Holy Land. And what he does, it says here, is he sent two of his disciples on ahead into the city next to them to get a donkey on which he would ride into Jerusalem. Now that might seem like a kind of a strange detail to include into this whole story that's about Jesus dying on a cross. You know, talking about his mode of transportation. It might seem very kind of strange or insignificant or out of place, but actually it was maybe one of the most important details in the entire story. Um, because it's vitally important on that day. You see, Jesus, the way he rode into Jerusalem made a difference. Entering into Jerusalem the way he did, he was, he was shouting something, basically, without saying a word. He was telling everyone that he was the promised king that they had been hoping for and praying for. See, when he rode into town on a donkey that day, he was fulfilling a 500-year-old prophecy from the prophet Zechariah who, who um, had said, listen, someday this king is coming. There's a certain way he's going to come. And they had held on to that prophecy and were waiting for the fulfillment. That's what verse 5 in chapter 21 is all about. He says, as a matter of fact, notice this, because some of you maybe kind of understand, don't understand why your Bibles are written a certain way. You see how that's written in a little different script and it's kind of separated? It's because it's saying this is a prophecy from the Old Testament. It's trying to separate it and, and say this is what he quoted. So he's quoting. You know how when you read a book and there's a quote, it's separated out? That's the same thing it's done if you have a long quote. So verse chapter 5, quoting Zechariah, says this, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So they've been waiting 500 years knowing this was prophesied. So here comes Jesus. He rides into Jerusalem, sitting on a donkey. He knew exactly what he was doing. Coming in a gentle manner. Coming, riding on a donkey. He doesn't have a sword in his hand. He doesn't have an army with him. He's not coming as a political insurrectionist. He's coming in the fulfillment of a prophetic king who's coming into town. And through his actions, he was stating openly for the first time in his ministry 
I am the promised king sent from God. I am the fulfillment of prophecy. I am the one you have been hoping for and praying for. Remember, people had been asking him all along, are you the one? He always gave him some kind of, kind of a roundabout answer. But coming in that way in fulfillment of prophecy, he was saying, I am the king you've been waiting for. And the people clearly understood his message. And one reason we can know they clearly understood his message isn't on that day, but about a week later. Can you recall that at his crucifixion, something, another detail that's put in that you might say, well, why is that included in the story? Remember what happened when the religious Jewish leaders, they made a sign and they nailed it on the cross above his head? Remember what the sign said? This is Jesus, King of the Jews. What did the Jewish leaders want it to say? He says he is the king. And Pilate goes, uh-uh, I'll say what I say. He was, or he, this is, the king of the Jews. His message on that Palm Sunday, it's all because of that day, that day on Palm Sunday. His message came through loud and clear that day. He's saying, I am the king sent from God to establish the kingdom of God. So the crowd understood it. Jesus is declaring it. So this crowd, filled with excitement, goes and they laid their coats and palm branches on the road and they shouted, Hosanna. Hosanna means save now. They're saying, this is the time. Hosanna, save us now. Hosanna, son of David. It's a king's welcome. David's anointed, King David's anointed descendant, who they've been waiting for, is finally here. God had promised that one of David's, David's descendants would rule forever on the throne. And they're going, this is it. It's happening right before our eyes. Now, let's understand something about that crowd that day, that praised Jesus on that day. They received him as king, but they misunderstood what it meant for Jesus to be king. They saw him as, as one, of, one anointed by God who would save them from Roman oppression, just like Moses had saved the Egyptians. They just sometimes things happen. Something happens in our in our walk with God. God does something one way today, and then we expect Him to do it the same way tomorrow. And so they knew history. They said a deliverer had come before. This deliverer is going to be like Moses. And they're saying, okay, He's going to deliver us just like Moses had delivered Egypt, Israel from Egypt. They thought Jesus would be this this great leader, this great political king leader, and and that's what they hoped for because the Jews lived under this heavy Roman oppression, just like the Jews had lived under uh, Egyptian oppression. They had high taxes, they had great restrictions, they had executions, and they wanted to be free. And here comes Jesus riding into town. Fulfillment of prophecy. And they believed that this Jesus must be the man. They had seen all the mighty deeds he had done, just like Moses had done mighty deeds. And they're like, this has got to be him. They had seen him restore blinded eyes just on his way. Right before he comes into Jerusalem, he stops and he heals blind Bartimaeus. They had seen miracles. They saw him feed thousands of people with one little boy's lunch. They saw him heal lame people. They saw him raise up a dead guy, Lazarus, and say, Lazarus, come forth. They had seen all of this. And surely with this power and authority that he had, Jesus was without doubt the one who would set them free. And in their minds, remember, let's put it all in context, in their minds, the timing for him to do this was absolutely perfect. The day was approaching the Passover feast. It was just going to be in the next week, the Passover feast. And that was symbolic of the event when the death angel 
had passed over the Jewish homes in Egypt that had the one and they were saved because they put the lamb's blood on the doorposts. And then Pharaoh, because their firstborn children are all killed in Egypt, Pharaoh let the people go. And they said, you know what? It's another time of freedom. For them, Passover was freedom. And they're thinking that, Jow, just maybe something like that would happen again. And Jesus would lead them from bondage to freedom. They're saying it's going to be like it was the last time with Moses. So on that day, the people received Jesus as their king. And they shouted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And friends, it was a great day for the people. Their years of suffering in their mind were over. Jesus was their king. And they're just saying in their minds, um, the Romans are going to get it. They're going to get it just like the Egyptians did. And you're going to see once and for all that our God is great. And you've been thinking you're beating us, you know, but we're going to, we're going to overcome. Friends, the atmosphere must have been absolutely electric. Remember, they didn't realize that the crucifixion was only a few days away, that within the week Jesus would be nailed to a cross and die. To them, Israel was going to rise again under the leadership and the power of their new king, Jesus. And friends, that's what was going on on that great day we call Palm Sunday. But you know what? Things didn't work out as they had imagined. Jesus didn't rise up in army. Great plagues didn't occur. They're probably like, when are the frogs coming? When are the gnats coming? Where's the death angel? They're thinking that those things, you know, great plagues didn't occur. That, it, that something that would cause the Romans to, to grant them freedom the way that Egypt had granted them freedom. No, Jesus didn't rise to power. Instead, he died a couple days later. And the Jewish leaders turned him over you know, to the Roman authorities and they killed him like a common criminal. It didn't turn out the way they thought it was going to turn out. And that Palm Sunday crowd that had hailed him as king now believed something. They believed that his kingdom had failed, that their king was dead, and their king was gone, and their king was powerless. That's what they believed on that day, just a few days later, after Palm Sunday. But friends, you know something? They didn't know that in three days the tomb would be empty and that King Jesus wasn't defeated, that he was in fact alive and his kingdom was present and powerful and that his kingdom is still present and powerful. Now, Fast forward from that Palm Sunday or maybe that week after the Palm Sunday after the, you know, after the death of Christ. Not the resurrection yet. But then from that point, now fast forward. Fast forward from that first Palm Sunday. Past the death of Jesus. And past his resurrection to his day of ascension. When he rose up and angels said, hey, he's coming back. We talked about it last week. And listen to the message that he taught to his faithful few followers on that day. Grab the book of Acts, chapter 1. For right now, just one verse. Verse 3. Remember, from that first Palm Sunday, they're going to say, how did their what's normal anyways change? Now you fast forward past his death, past his resurrection, to his ascension. And look at verse 3. And to these... He also, these meaning his followers, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. And listen, and this is it. 
and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. For 40 days, from his resurrection to his ascension, he taught about one thing, his kingdom. He taught about the same thing that he had taught about during his entire earthly ministry. You see, for, for three years, he had preached one main message. Remember, what the, what's the main message Jesus taught everywhere he went? This is what the Gospels record. Repent for the what? The kingdom of God has come near. Or repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And if you examine Jesus' teachings, you find that that is really about all he had ever taught about for the first three years. Jesus, remember how Jesus taught. He primarily taught in parables, and nearly all of his parables were about one thing. They were about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven, he'd say, which is the same, same thing. They're interchangeable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sows good seed in the field. And he would tell a story. Or the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And he would tell a story. Or the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman mixed into flour until it was um, leavened through the whole lump. And then here we find him on this, on this day of his ascension. He tells his followers again. He says, listen, it's all about my kingdom. My kingdom is real and it's powerful and it's present. And that's the point he's trying to make. So the difference from those people who saw Jesus die before he was resurrected to the Acts Christians who are saying what's normal anyways, for them this is what they understood and it affected everything about their world. What's normal anyways for them? Knowing that Jesus' kingdom is a present reality. Those on Palm Sunday didn't think so. They thought he died and the kingdom was doomed. But fast forward one week, and what we find out is what's normal anyways for them and for us is knowing that Jesus' kingdom is a present reality. That his kingdom didn't end when he died on the cross. Friends, this is the truth. That his kingdom was established when he rose from the dead. This needs to grip our hearts and our lives because it will change how you live your Christian life. There's a reality of the kingdom that occurs, in, that, that is real, but we often don't embrace. And because we don't embrace it and understand it, we live substandard Christian lives. I honestly believe that's true. Because his kingdom didn't die on the cross. That his kingdom was established when he rose from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead... He broke the power of sin over mankind and he established his kingdom rule which has been destroying Satan's kingdom one soul at a time ever since that day. That's what's going on. That's the present reality. That's what's normal anyways. And friends, if you have been born again, then you have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and now you live within the kingdom of God. So we have to undo, I really think, some false belief that so many of us have. The belief that the kingdom of God either is dead or the kingdom of God is something out there in the future that we will only experience when we die, that we somehow then enter into the kingdom of God. You know, yes, it's true that we will enter the fullness of the kingdom of God in the future, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There will be a fulfillment of the, of the totality of the kingdom then. And yes, it's true that the kingdom of God at this point has not yet been fully established. 
in any nation, even though our money, pull it out, one nation under God. But it's not a, this nation isn't fully established in the kingdom of God. Matter of fact, it's slipping more every day. There's not a state in the nation. Go to the Bible Belt. There's still not a state in the nation where the kingdom is fully established. And I would say this. There's not a person I've ever met, including me, where the kingdom of God is fully established. But that in no way means that the kingdom of God has not come or is not a present reality in this world and in your life today. You see, the kingdom of God, friends, is a present reality that we need to live in and experience. It needs to, and we need to think about it and understand how that affects us. It's a present reality that will be fully experienced or consummated in the future. The kingdom is here and now. It is real and it is powerful today, as powerful and real today as it will ever be in the future. The kingdom is now. You see, one day... It will be, the kingdom will be the governing power over the entire universe. We know that. But understand something for us in this chair and for the first century Acts Christians. But for now, the kingdom is intended to be the governing power over you and me. Over every single one of us who says that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. You see, God wants his children to stop living by self-rule. And of any nation on the planet where this message needs to be understood in the church, it's in the church of Jesus Christ in America today. That God wants his children. I didn't say the world. He doesn't expect people who don't know him to do this. His children. To stop living by self-rule and start living under the rule of his kingdom. But not because he wants to dominate or control you. But for this reason. Because in his kingdom is where real power lies. And in his kingdom is where real peace is found. And if you're seeking peace in anything other than the kingdom, you'll never find it. And if you're seeking power, spiritual power, in any way other than the kingdom, you won't really find it. You can fake it, but you won't find it. Understand, church, living under the rule of the kingdom leads to real peace and real power. And I want to explain how this works. In three places... Jesus taught about what it means to enter the kingdom of God, to live under the rule of the kingdom. And I'm just going to mention them. In John chapter 3, you read, he says, to get in the kingdom, you need to be born of water and spirit. Talking to Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. He says, you have to be born again to enter the kingdom. In Mark chapter 10, he says, you need to be like a little child. Dependent and trusting is what he's talking about there. And in Matthew chapter 5, he says you need to be more righteous than the Pharisees. That you need to be um, internally, he's talking about internally dependent on God rather than being self-righteous. Thinking that your, your own religious activity, your own righteousness is good enough. Saying, no, you've got to understand in humility, there's nothing you can do that's good enough. You need to be, you need to be dependent on God, internally dependent on God. Now, all of these three things, these three areas, the common denominator, there's one common thread through the whole thing, is this. It's a submissive dependence on Jesus. That's the common denominator. A submissive dependence upon Christ. It's yielding your rule and welcoming his rule into your life. See, when we as children of God give up our self-rule, 
and begin to yield to his kingship, his rulership, then we begin to experience the benefits of living in the kingdom of God. And I would say this, that if you don't give up self-rule and begin to yield to his rule, his kingship, then you will not experience the benefits of living in the kingdom, even though it's, it's, it's available to you. And he'll let you live without it. Um, now, before I, I talk about the benefits, let me tell you what I'm not saying. First, I'm not saying that living under the kingdom rule is easy or problem-free. I'm going to talk about the benefits in a second. But I'm not saying that means life is easy and problem-free. In fact, the Apostle Paul, if you won't look at the kingdom, the kingdom is mentioned all the way through the book of Acts. And in the middle of Acts, chapter 14, verse 22, Paul says something amazing that we don't like to hear. He says this, through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. And understand this, he said that immediately after being stoned and left for dead at Lystra. The first thing he preaches after being stoned and left for dead, they drag him out of the city and they think he's dead and he rises from the dead. I, th- I honestly believe he was dead. I personally believe he was dead when he was resurrected because they don't fail at killing people in the day when they stone people to death. But maybe they did. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. But the fact is, immediately after that, he says, listen, through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. So I'm not saying it's problem free. What I am saying is that when we begin to live under, the, under Jesus' rule, under his kingship, that our world, that our perspectives begin to change. And we begin to see the world the way he does. And we begin to move, begin to more fully experience his presence in our life, which you will find as you walk with Jesus for a while, is the only thing in life that brings any real satisfaction. I was with a group of pastors this last week. And one of the pastors said to the other pastor, we get together and we pray regularly, and they're not pastors from this church. It's a group of guys from the community. And we were talking to the one guy who's really struggling, and interestingly, we're all about the same age. We're all kind of going through life at the same time, and, and he's you know, struggling because church growth and administration and building buildings and all this stuff, and he's like, kind of like, what's it, all, what's it all about? What's it all matter? And two of us looked at him and said, there's only one thing. There's only one thing that brings satisfaction in this Christian life. And that is beginning to experience legitimately the presence of God in your life. That having that awareness of Christ, having that genuineness of the relationship that goes beyond going to church, it goes beyond dutifully reading your Bible, it's experiencing the reality of God by His Spirit. You'll find it's the only thing in this world that brings any satisfaction. That all the things we accomplish, all the things we achieve, you get them, you go empty, 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 empty. There's only one thing that satisfies. And that is experiencing more fully the presence of the Lord. Friends, that's why living under the rule of the kingdom results in true peace. Said you, you get, in the kingdom you get peace and power. You get true peace in the kingdom because you know that you are living in the care of King Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you understand that his kingdom is stable. 
even if the entire world is falling apart, even if everything worldly or fleshly or tangible that you're involved in is crumbling before you, you are still in the stable kingdom of God, and you can give you a peace. What does the Bible say? That surpasses all understanding. Why? Not because you work it up. It's because you surrender to the king of the kingdom and you live in that relationship where he's the ruler and you're a follower. And you really strive and you say, I want to live, really live like that. Then you get the peace of the kingdom because the kingdom of God is stable. It's unshaking. And even though everything else gets shaken, you get to live in the, in the, in the peace of knowing that everything is in his hands. He's going to care for you because you're one of his. That's where the true peace comes in. And friends, living then also under the rule of the kingdom is the only place where real power comes from. The power for transformation in your life. Some of you have been wrestling with things for a long time. You said, I just can't get over it. It's because you need to surrender to the will, the will of the king. Live in that relationship under just trying harder. Trying harder is self-will. The Pharisees were masters at trying harder. They tried harder than anybody. Jesus constantly criticized them. It had to drive them nuts. Put yourself, we're most like the Pharisees. We're devoted. We give it all. We, Pastor, you, you talked about tithing. You know, they tithed to, the, to their little herbs they grew. But it was all self-will, self-effort, self-righteousness. Jesus was trying to say, stop that. He didn't say stop doing those things. He said, but you're doing them wrong. You're doing them for the wrong reason. He said, listen, just live where I'm your king and walk with me. Stop trying to do all this stuff. Instead, walk with me. And you'll experience the kingdom where there's peace, but then there's real power, power for real transformation in your life. So that the things that you're wrestling with, here's the difference. You won't want to do them anymore. The things that were a battle to you, stop being a battle because you don't want to do it anymore. Power for transformation, power for maturing, power for ministering, all flows from the kingdom. You see, one day Jesus heals a blind man. I was blind, and he was, in, it's talking about Matthew chapter 12. He was blind and mute, demon-possessed man. So that's what Matthew says about it, Matthew chapter 12. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees, were mad because he helped the guy, which is always just amazing to me. They set him free. And they accused him of casting out demons by the power of the ruler of the demons. Remember that story? They said, oh, you only do this because you're demon-possessed and the demons are helping you. And the ruler of the demons is helping you. And Jesus straightened them out. And he explained how the power to minister is linked to the kingdom. He said this in Matthew 12, 28. He says, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. He's saying, this is how I did it, not by the power of demons. He said, I did it by the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God flows in the kingdom of God. Church, the power of the Holy Spirit is manifest through people who live under the rule of the kingdom, not through those ruled by pride or self-righteousness or self-rule. So if we want to live lives of true peace and true power, the kind of lives that were normal. What's normal anyways? Living in this life of, we see all the power of the Spirit operating in our life, their peace to walk through anything. 
We saw stories of somebody like Perpetua in the very beginning of this, who was one of the early church martyrs, who sat there as she took her baby away. She was nursing, and, they, and they, they tied her to a wild beast, and it beat her, and then they chopped her head off, and it didn't work the first time, and she grabbed the sword. Remember the story? She took the gladiator's sword and put it to her throat and said, no, do it, and she loved the guy that was killing her. Had this peace that drove everybody crazy, but converted thousands because they're like, what's different? What was different is she understood that life, this life of true peace, this life of power, that was the life of power, that, that kind of life that was normal for the early church is because they understood they were people of the kingdom, that they were citizens of a different world. They understood that what's going on around here is not all there is. Matter of fact, it's not even all that important. They stopped being more, less, they weren't, was there maybe the CNN of the day or the Fox of the day, you know, maybe CNN Cave News Network, whatever, I'm not sure, but they weren't concerned with that so much. They were concerned about the establishment of the kingdom. They were concerned about the kingdom ruling in their lives. They were concerned about getting the world worked out of them and saying, you take control of me. I want to live in the power of the kingdom, live in this continual relationship with Jesus. That was normal to them. And because it was normal, they lived lives of peace and power. If we want that, then we must be people of the kingdom of God. More concerned with the kingdom of God and his rule than the kingdom of this world. People who invite the rule of King Jesus into their lives and follow his lead. That's how you live a life of power and a life of peace. And I believe this. I believe that's every one of you wants that. It's what I want. It comes down to saying, God, I just want to, I want to abandon this. I want to abandon the stuff. Not that you stop going to work. You say, God, I understand that's really not what it's all about. I want to just live a life where I live in your kingdom and I'm ruled by you and I listen to you and I follow your lead and I surrender to your goodness. That's what he has for us. Life in the kingdom. What's normal anyways? It's living in the reality that the kingdom of God is a present reality and it's powerful and we're citizens of it, not citizens of this world. That's where peace and power come from. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Would you just join me in prayer this morning in a prayer of, of uh, surrender? It's just been the, the thought I've had for myself this, this whole day preparation for this day because it's something so contrary to how I've been raised and trained is to surrender. It doesn't mean we're wimpy. It doesn't mean we're lazy. It means we yield to the most important power. That's the power of God. The rulership of the kingdom. We live by His principles. We walk in His ways. So, Lord Jesus, you rode into town that day and they hailed you as king and they were mistaken when they thought that you weren't. When the Roman authorities arrested you and they beat you and they killed you, they thought your kingdom's rule was over. But you were only establishing it. You were establishing it in power and strength. You were taking it beyond this world and making it into something that is that is spiritual and eternal. And so, Lord, this morning, for myself, for anybody else who would join in, we just we just yield to your kingdom. 
we yield to the reality that we, that we need you, Lord. And we want to live according to your ways for your glory. So, Father, I pray by your Spirit you'd begin to just show us, God, what it means to surrender to you. Show us, God, what it means to to put you first. Because, Lord, I know this, for a lot of times in my life, I can can do it today and in two weeks I'm kind of living self-willed again. And i got to come back again and say, I want to live under your rulership. So, God, this morning, we yield to your spirit. We open up our hearts and say that your way is the best way. We surrender to you.